0: Hi, I'm Salima Shivji, and I'm a reporter here in Mumbai. We're gearing up for the biggest election in history right now, with Prime Minister Narendra Modi looking very likely to win his third term. And whether you love him, hate him, or know nothing about him, there's no denying Modi is one of the most powerful political figures out there right now. Learn why in the newest season of Understood. Modi's India Understood. Available now wherever you get your podcasts.
1: This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Alex Panetta. A warning before we begin. This episode deals with details of violence. Thank you for police emergency
0: line. Hi there, there is a, uh, we have a problem here. There is a guy uh, who uh, bothered my neighbor. She's a young, she's a middle-aged woman. And he just, uh, you know, she, she, she was just washing the outside and he took the water and the spray on her. And he's just standing in front of the door and swearing. And Who is this guy? I don't know, someone from outside. We don't know what
1: you're hearing, it's one of two 911 calls made back in August 2015, when a guy on delivery for a flower business in Burnaby, BC, confronts a woman who's watering her lawn in the middle of a drought. A police officer arrives, backup is called. Charlie,
0: Can you. just hurry up uh, cover here? Just uh, acting a
1: little aggressive. Seven officers follow the man the unarmed 33-year-old Miles Gray into a nearby forested area. And within an hour, Miles is dead.
0: It's 3HS.
1: Male's unconscious. He's not responding. He's beaten so badly, his eye socket was fractured, his nose, his rib, broken. His voice box crushed. His testicle ruptured. His injuries were so severe that an autopsy couldn't determine what exactly killed him. Miles's mother and sister have said they're haunted by questions about what happened that day. But the only surviving witnesses to Miles' death, they're the police officers who beat him. And they weren't talking, not publicly.
0: It just feels very corrupt that this can happen in Canada. Um, but they haven't had to say anything and we've just been waiting.
1: And that all changed last week. Nearly eight years later, a coroner's inquest is now underway in BC looking to determine the facts around his death and with the help of a jury to make recommendations to prevent similar deaths in the future. My colleague Rihanna Schmunk is here. She's covering the inquest in Vancouver and she's going to walk us through what we're learning about what happened to Miles Gray. Hi, Rihanna. Hi. Uh, First, before we get into the circumstances of his death, why don't we start with Miles Gray and his life? Uh, What can you tell me about him?
0: Sure. So his sister, Melissa Gray, she was actually the first person to take the stand at the start of this entire inquest. And it's worth noting that she's the only person who's really gotten up there um, and talked about his character, about who he was as a person outside of the way that he died. Um, She says Miles was her only sibling Someone who was kind, goofy, loyal, you know, the kind of person who maintains a lot of friendships and made those friends laugh all the time, no matter where they were or what they were doing. Um, Loved shows like SNL, Saved by the Bell, Fresh Prince, and he ran, as we know, a wholesale business selling florals in Seashelt on BC's Sunshine Coast. Uh, Melissa told a story to the inquest about how Miles helped her boyfriend, who's now her husband, Uh, pick out her engagement ring before her husband proposed and how Miles never got to be at that wedding or meet his future niece and nephew. So overall, she's, you know, the way any sister would talk about the brother that she loved so much.
1: And uh, of course, on one afternoon in 2015, Miles is out making a delivery for his wholesale florist business. And there actually was, if I understand correctly, a watering restriction in place in Metro Vancouver at the time because of the drought. And that included a total ban on lawn watering. And so what do we know about how the police ended up being called and about this confrontation he gets into with this woman who's watering her lawn?
0: Right. So, like you said, we've always known that this started with something to do with lawn watering, some kind of dispute. But we now have a little bit more detail about what happened. Um, So a woman's son and neighbor called 911 and they said a man who was shirtless, wasn't wearing any shoes, had wandered into their neighborhood on Marine Drive and yanked the garden hose was the term they used from her hand outside the co-op building, sprayed her with it, uh, swore at her, um, made sexual remarks to her. He sprayed my mom with water. I don't
1: know what. These are the only animals He any.
0: did what to your mom with water?
1: He sprayed like my mom was watering like, the plants, and he grabbed this her and started spraying her and saying to her pot and stuff.
0: And so the woman's son and neighbor call nine one one, and they say that they think maybe this man is intoxicated. Something something's going on.
1: Does he, Does he seem drunk
0: or high? He said he came drunk? Yeah, seemed yeah he, he's tired, John, just one of them, I don't know. And he's, in, he's just standing in front of your house? Yeah, he's walking around right in front of me. He's
1: shirtless. And so, I mean, is it possible he might have been having some kind of mental health crisis? Like, was that a possibility?
0: So Melissa Gray, who's Miles' sister, told the inquest that her brother had been diagnosed with bipolar disorder when he was a teenager around maybe 1999, but she says she understood Miles was stable since then he had that initial episode and otherwise she knew him to be completely stable and fine Um, his family doctor also testified and said he knew about a historical diagnosis but believed the bipolar was well controlled Uh, melissa gray now actually works as a psychiatric nurse and she says that she agreed that perhaps he could have been suffering um, a manic episode but if that was Uh the case she said he would have needed some compassion and some help
1: We know the officers uh, arrive on the scene that day, and they've now testified at the inquest. Uh, so, how do they explain what they came upon and how they responded?
0: So, we heard that the first officer who responded on that initial nine one one call, um, she arrived alone in a police van, or they refer to it as a police wagon, and she says she called for backup after Gray got aggressive with her. Um, You know, she says she started talking to him and and then it kind of took a turn um, and he ended up grabbing the door of her van when she retreated back into the driver's seat. Um, So two more officers responded to her call for backup and then four more after that. So the initial first group of officers, they follow Gray up a set of stairs into this forested backyard on Joffrey Avenue. And I'll pause here to say that this forested aspect of the backyard will become important because The trees that are around it, it's a very leafy, um, Mm. secluded, kind of green backyard, which is important because in the end, no one else would be able to see what was going on in that backyard. It's all very obscured from the sidewalk. It's kind of up a hill. So all of the officers in gray, you can imagine, kind of follow this concrete staircase up into the trees, into this backyard, and they disappear. Um, Mm -hmm. And no one but police saw what unfolded next. And within nine minutes... Gray was unconscious, handcuffed, hogtied. His ankles were bound. Um, he was beaten and he did regain consciousness at some point after after falling unconscious, woke up again. But 12 minutes later, he went into cardiac arrest and was later pronounced dead.
1: And so we know his injuries were extensive, but uh, this wasn't just one or two hits while well, police were trying to handcuff him. Could you lay out for me uh, what we've learned about the, the the force the police used in this case?
0: We've heard from, you know, roughly half a dozen officers have taken the stand now and they all follow this theme and they all outline what they did. Um, But he he was pepper sprayed, punched, kneed, struck batons. At one point, he was held in a chokehold. As I mentioned, he was hobbled, which is when his feet are tied together. They were trying to get handcuffs on him. It was a violent, violent beating. And one constable says he thought the only alternative to subdue him would have been to shoot him. And that's kind of the theme You know, not the shooting aspect, but the theme that all of the officers are following is that they believe that that that's what they had to do, that Gray was aggressive. He was threatening them. Um, They all commented on his physical fitness. They describe him as jacked or ripped. Exhibiting superhuman strength was a term used uh, more than once. Um, They believed he was intoxicated, maybe using performance enhancing drugs like steroids. So they all paint a picture of someone who they couldn't subdue through any other means.
1: Okay, well, just to be clear here, uh, Miles Gray was unarmed. I mean, have any of the officers indicated that anybody, like anyone at all, attempted to de-escalate the situation before resorting to force?
0: So the first officer, as I mentioned, she says she got on scene. She's just responding to a disturbance at this point, and she says she did try to talk to him. You know, hey, man, how's it going? You okay? But something that the family has pointed out is that they don't think so. They think that the others, the others who responded to her calls for backup— uh, just kind of went in and uh, didn't give de escalation a fair chance. They need to be able to verbally de escalate people. They need to learn what to do when somebody is in a crisis. If someone's having a mental health crisis and they aren't wearing shoes and they aren't wearing a shirt, they should be able to identify that.
1: And I, I, can't, like, I can't imagine what it must have been like for Miles uh, Gray's family to hear this testimony. And uh, how have they been reacting uh, to, to, to the things they've been hearing?
0: So they have been in the room, in the inquest room. It's quite a small room, so they are quite, you know, physically close. And hearing all of this, you know, it's, as I said, it was a violent beating. And it's difficult for anybody to listen to, but unimaginably so. Um, for his family, his mother has attended um, every day, Margie Gray. He was in obvious mental distress. He needed care. He needed compassion. And nobody cared about him. Um, they are playing the audio of the 911 call. They are playing you know, the audio from police radios, and they're listening to to all of it, of course, knowing how it ended. Um, so, yes, unimaginably difficult.
1: Yeah, I understand. That also, there's this particular audio recording that they heard that it made them question this whole idea that he was displaying superhuman strength. I mean, can you talk to me about that uh, that
0: specific recording? Right. So, something that the officers have said is that the use of force escalated because he Gray was not responding to any of the He wasn't feeling pain. Multiple officers have said he didn't appear to be feeling any pain. You know, they would punch him. That didn't work. Then they would get the baton. That didn't work. And they so they're saying he, you know, superhuman strength, not feeling any pain, not phased by any of this. And at one point there was a recording played for the inquest. And in the background, you can hear screaming, um, which is deeply upsetting to the family. And Margie Gray told reporters after that that you know, really refutes any idea that he wasn't feeling any pain at all. It was very, it was extremely difficult to hear because the narrative of this whole
1: eight years, almost eight years story is Miles had superhuman strength and he did not feel pain. I hit him with a baton so hard it broke his arm and he didn't flinch. I did this to him and that to him and he felt zero pain. And yet this audio recording that we heard yesterday that we weren't even made aware of that we were going to hear... Miles is just screaming in agony in the background and that was incredibly difficult to hear, actually traumatizing.
0: The climate is changing, so are we. I'm Laura Lynch and I host What on Earth? That's CBC's
1: Climate Solutions Podcast. Twice a week, we take you around the world to find the people
0: who are trying to build a better future for all of us. We explore Indigenous science, new technologies. We talk openly about mental health and climate anxiety. We also take your smart questions all the time. Come find What on Earth wherever you get your podcasts.
1: We've talked about superhuman strength. I want to ask you about excited delirium. One officer testified that his first impression was Miles is experiencing what I just mentioned, something called excited delirium, which he thought could lead to this so-called superhuman strength. What is excited delirium?
0: So this is a highly contentious term, actually, uh, and it typically describes kind of this state of agitation, aggression, uh, extreme strength, overheating, like physical overheating. Uh, and distress that's generally linked to drug use or mental illness. And it's been used a lot as a, as an explanation for sudden unexpected deaths uh, during interactions with the police.
1: You mentioned it's been referred to in other prominent cases. It came up in the testimony of an Ottawa police officer in the death of uh, Abdurrahman Abdi, a senior RCMP officers cited it in the death of Robert Chikansky at Vancouver's airport in the U.S. Uh, defense lawyers mentioned it in the George Floyd case. It's a controversial term. because you talk to me about what, like, what makes it controversial?
0: Right. So, and I pause here to say it was also one of several possible explanations given by a forensic pathologist for the death of Gray. But that was back in 2015. And we know now that Gray's injuries were so extensive um, that forensic pathologists weren't ever able to determine a cause of death. But this excited delirium, the pathologist said, maybe this could have been a possibility. But that was back in 2015, and there's a major shift underway. Medical examiners and coroners across Canada and the U.S. are starting to reject excited delirium as a cause of death. Both the American Medical Association and the American Psychiatric Association have dismissed this diagnosis entirely. Uh, Earlier this spring, the National Association of Medical Examiners made headlines when they released a statement saying they no longer recognize excited delirium as a cause of death. And its president at the time said the group was concerned um, that the phrase might be used to justify excessive force by police, especially uh, when black people have died. It's also not a recognized diagnosis, according to several bodies, including the World Health Organization.
1: Okay. So given all that controversy, then, what has the coroner's guidance been to the jury uh, when it comes to how they should treat the concept of excited delirium in their deliberations?
0: Right. And the inquest, I'll say, started off with a bit of a debate about this. Witnesses hadn't even been called and were already, this is already on the table. This is already something that lawyers are, are kind of getting into a spat about. Um, lawyers for the family and Vancouver police were having a back and forth about which experts should be allowed to give evidence about excited delirium. So right out the gate, this is contentious. Um, police officers, as we expected, have said that they believed Miles Gray was experiencing excited delirium the day he died. But the presiding coroner cautioned jury members about it and said most, as I mentioned, most pathologists no longer recognize the term as a cause of death and that the medical community is debating its relevancy. So the coroner also noted that the inquest will hear from a medical expert later on. About the phrase, and he told the jury to take less weight on a layperson's statements about it, referring to you know a police officer who's not a medical expert.
1: Okay, so let's talk about the aftermath and what police did afterwards. So there's this pretty shocking bit of testimony from one of the officers involved about some advice he was given in the aftermath of Miles Gray's death by someone from the police union. So what did this police union representative tell him?
0: Yes. So Constables Josh Wong, Derek Kane, Bo Spencer, three of them, three of the seven, told the inquest that a senior union representative told them not to take handwritten notes about the fight after Gray died. Wong says he was taken to police headquarters after Gray died, you know, to wait for lawyers, the union reps, the IAO. He says he was sitting there in this red leather chair with a pen and notebook ready to go um, when a senior rep came up to him and told him not to write any notes.
1: So don't leave a Uh, paper trail.
0: Don't leave a paper trail. He doesn't remember the exact words, but something to the degree of, you know, don't write that down. Um, And he says he thought it was odd. But he listened and then um, went home and typed up some notes later and saved them on a USB stick and uploaded them to the police database months after that. Uh,
1: This is pretty crucial testimony to be hearing. And yet this is the first time we've heard from any of these officers nearly eight years after Miles Gray's death. Why is this the first time?
0: So, and this is a question a lot of people are asking. Uh, In B.C., witness officers are supposed to attend interviews with the police watchdog under the Police Act It's Required, Um, but that didn't happen in this case. Some of the Vancouver police officers refused to sit down with the Independent Investigations Office, the IAO, unless the watchdog gave them access to evidence like recordings, transcripts, other documentation. Um, the IIO actually petitioned B.C. Supreme Court twice to try and compel the officers to cooperate. And when I say cooperate, I mean sit down for interviews, hand over the notes, that kind of thing. Um, B.C. Supreme Court Justice Miriam Gropper actually sided with the IIO and said officers do have a duty to cooperate. And that was upheld on appeal, but of course not after years of delays.
1: OK, so back in 2020, after... B.C.'s independent police watchdog had investigated. The Crown prosecutor decides not to press criminal charges against the officers involved. Can, can you explain the rationale to me why there were no charges?
0: So the IIO forwarded a report to Crown and they believe that there were grounds to charge some of the officers. Charges like manslaughter, aggravated assault, assault causing bodily harm. Uh, But as you said, prosecutors didn't lay any charges at all. They say they couldn't establish a clear picture of what happened because of contradictions between the statements of the officers involved. And again, as I mentioned, nobody else saw what happened here. The only witnesses to Gray's death were the officers who were involved. There's no photo. There's no video. There's no other evidence to work from. So with the inconsistent testimony and the inability to pinpoint an exact cause of death, uh, Crown didn't believe that they'd be able to prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt. And prosecutors, as we know, they don't bring cases they don't think they can win. And the yeah. evidence here, in a, in a formal sense, they didn't have the substantial likelihood of conviction that's required here to meet the standard for charges being approved.
1: And again, you mentioned they're surrounded by trees. It's just it's the only witnesses are these officers. And you explain how some of these officers didn't cooperate with that watchdog investigation. Uh, but what made this coroner's inquest different?
0: So a coroner's inquest can actually summon people. It's like a subpoena. You can essentially force them to come and testify. But in exchange, anything that is said in their evidence or their testimony can't be used against them in a criminal trial or civil proceedings in the future. That's kind of why coroner's inquests in B.C. go last. They go after the criminal case is dealt with or after a civil case is dealt with. Um, So I'll say here that there is a separate investigation happening right now into the officer's conduct um, from a misconduct perspective, the Office of the Police Complaints Commissioner in BC is investigating this, and the police chief in charge of that file found the officers might have abused their authority by using a necessary force on Gray. Um, my colleague Bethany Lindsay has done quite a bit of reporting on this, mm. and he found, the police chief found, Six of the seven officers might have neglected their duty. Also, on top of the abuse of authority allegations, they might have neglected their duty by failing to take any written notes about what happened to Gray. Uh, Now, the discipline for abuse authority could be as severe as being fired if the allegations are proven. And for neglect of duty, it could be suspension without pay for 30 days. And there will be a disciplinary hearing on all of this potentially later this year.
1: Okay, so all these years later, it's not we're not just looking at a a fact finding exercise at, a, at, a, at an inquiry being where this ends. There's there is the potential for for some sort of discipline. Going back to the in- inquest, what what do you expect to hear in the uh, coming days and the weeks? Like, what witnesses uh, would we expect to see uh, called upon?
0: So this week we're going to be hearing from other first responders who came to the scene um, after Gray died. People like firefighters and paramedics, and they'll be speaking about what they found. Um, we'll also be hearing from toxicology expert, which is interesting given how much police have said about their belief that Gray was intoxicated. Uh, and we'll also hear from a forensic pathologist who can speak to what the autopsy found, the difficulty in determining a cause of death, um, and things like that.
1: Um, I'd like to. Uh, finish where we started with Miles Gray. Uh, his family, uh, what do they hope to see out of this process? What's 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 their goal in this uh, in this inquest?
0: Yeah, they want to see someone take responsibility or ownership. I think of what, um, you know, an explanation, more of an explanation about what happened. Um, as I mentioned, you know, officers are all clear on why they were called to the scene and. And what happened. But none of them say they saw the injuries that might have killed him. None of them say they saw any blood. None of them say, you know, anything to that degree that might shed light on how he died or or what happened um, in the last, you know, seconds of his life. Um, so his family has said they want answers. They want honesty. They want um, the truth about all of those things. And, you know, I Melissa Gray said she wants the officers involved to lose their jobs. For eight years, we keep having to talk about his injuries and what they've done and keep having it thrown in our faces that they're just still working. And again, that's more of a question for the disciplinary hearing. If allegations are proven, as I mentioned, that's not something um, that's likely to come out of a coroner's inquest. But I think they're still very much looking for some accountability.
1: Brianna, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. That's all for today. I'm Alex Panetta, in for Jamie Poisson. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you tomorrow.
0: For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.